His name is Alexis Borsier. Like, my right ear is now charged to 40%. Since he was a child, he's been raised to consider pop culture as a fine art to be studied, dissected, analyzed, and debated. My name is Ben Spiro. So far, my notes for this podcast are five times the length of my doctoral dissertation. That might be a problem. Together, we're proud to present... Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure. Welcome to Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure, the show where two friends take a deep dive into the pop culture grab bag and hurl random implements of entertainment one another with reckless abandon. Today, we're concluding our fairy tales of New York with Mork Battle, with the second part of a special extra long two parter about Terry Gilliam's 1991 magical realist romance, The Fisher King. Now, I've always prided myself in my ability to edit the mammoth recording sessions for this podcast down to reasonable sized chunks, but for one of my favorite movies, I figured, eh, screw it, we're going long. So, don't forget to listen to part one of our Fisher King talk if you haven't already. And otherwise, we're just going to continue where we left off. The return! At home, poor Mercedes Rule has an argument with Jack, who isn't there because he's out with Perry in the middle of Central Park. It is a bad idea. Perry is naked, lying in the middle of the park, cloud-busting using his psychic energy, and you get to see Robin Williams' junk if that's a thing that was missing from your life. Uh, Here's a little fact. Gilliam had real problems with the scene, not because, you know, anything in particular was happening, just because Robin doesn't like to um, be restricted in basically any way at all, whatsoever. And so eventually the entire shooting style became, just just try to keep it above his waist. Just try to keep it above (laughs) his waist if you get there. Well, but like, yeah, no, he's not going to do any of the things he said. (laughs) Yes, there are some very careful ways we could hide his junk here. And we should try to do that. But he's not going to be involved in the process. I'm sorry. (laughs) And look, I'm sure there was a way to cut it so that there were no, there was no junk. But, but he made a choice. He made a choice somewhere along the line. And this feels like a movie with a little bit of junk, doesn't it? Right. For a movie that didn't need to be R-rated, let's just throw a penis in there. There's no real reason not to anymore. Although, a penis in 1991 might get you an NC-17. Jack is incredulous about the idea. I'm talking to the little people! Are they here? They're saying, Jack, go to the nearest liquor store, findeth the Jack of Daniels, that ye may be shit-faced! Dulang, Dulang! They said that? He keeps reciting to himself the news headlines about when he's found dead tomorrow. I think it's great that he views himself from the point of view of the news stories about his demise. Hey, I'm almost certain I've had this conversation with you while shit-faced. <laughs> <laughs> Just gonna say, I'm not super proud of it. I think I understand Jack's character here. <laughs> it is very telling And sometimes the answer is none, and that's also telling. But it's very telling about a person and their personality and their view of the world based on what kind of media outlets they imagine reporting about their actions. Uh, I went up to Mountain Climb with all the rest of Second Team. And a couple of times I fell, I was like, you know what? The question is, when I fall, am I former disgraced lawyer or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or am I aspiring actor? I, I don't 
I don't know which one. I think if I die here, I'm aspiring actor. I think if I die on the ground, I might be disgraced lawyer. But I'm, I think here with you guys here and everything, I think, <laughs> I think I'm aspiring actor. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a good change. <laughs> really is. <laughs> And there, lying naked in the middle of Central Park, Robin Williams tells him the story of the Fisher King. It's a tale of a, of a fool who was able to heal a wounded king because in his innocence, he was the only one with the capacity to find the Holy Grail. And, and the thought of helping another is what makes it possible for him to do the impossible. Uh, I don't know if you've ever looked into this story. It's the thing that I think about every once in a while whenever I hear Arthurian legend. Mm -hmm. The historical version of this tale is a lot more complicated as everything that was made a thousand years ago is. Right. But yeah. The three of them just kept telling each other the story of the Fisher King mm. for this very reason. The, wait, the three of them being Robin Williams, Jeff Bridges, and... And Gilliam. And Gilliam. Okay. Kept just retelling the story until they came up with the story of the Fisher King. Mm -hmm. Because there was so there was so much brought in. There was so much external stuff that they were just like, we should pay some respect because it's the title of the movie. Mm -hmm. But also, we can't do this. Right. Can't that, <laughs> it it's kind of a story of failure to heal uh -huh. someone. It's about not being pure enough, and so you're unable to help someone. That's not what this, this movie is about. That's the key here, that it, it takes a selfless act to heal in this, in this imaginary tale that they've concocted. Because it's easy to make a version of, and I call this the Patch Adams version of this movie, that Robin Williams is the fool and Jeff Bridges is the wounded king that needs to be healed. But, the truth is that it's both of them, that they are both incredibly wounded and they are both fools and only by by trying to help one another can they get out of it. Yeah, this is the Gilliam of it. And mm -hmm. I love it. <laughs> right. I, I like that it's just a little more complicated than you might think. Jack decides that what he can do for Perry to help him alleviate his guilt and, and fix the, the wrong he's done is to help him get the girl of his dreams. Maybe that'll stop this never-ending torture that the world seems to be sending him. Jack enacts a plan, which I find to be d delightfully self-absorbed. It really is. It's <laughs> the, Again, the beauty of this, and the beauty of, I think, Gilliam's perspective, it's something you definitely see in, like, Munchausen, is, like, these are all people who are trying to help others, but... They're terrible people trying <laughs> right. to help others. They're terrible people trying to... Jack has no experience in this. <laughs> yeah, a lesser director, I think, would 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 not let them be quite so terrible. And like, oh, no, they're terrible at this. Uh, oh, oh, so it's a lie? Oh, no, he genuinely wants to help. He just has no frame of reference for how one does that. Just none. <laughs> he, he calls her up like it's from his, his radio show. He's got, I got the power blaring into the phone as he tries to offer her a free video rental subscription. He, he's just moving tapes back and forth. He's just doing the DJ thing. Her, his offer of a free video subscription and free VCR, I guess, for a little bit, is, is supposed to, like, lure her in so that she can meet Perry. 
this is quite creepy when you think about the reality of it. So let's try not to do that. Right, right. Again, it's, it's, it, but, but he is being genuine. It's, 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 mm. it's, it's that split of the difference that matters. A- Anne comes in and is pissed off that he's calling some, some lady named Lydia from her phone. And he looks at her and he's like, I thought. That if I could help him in, in some way, get him this girl that he loves, then things would change for me. Like, and it just is that, oh, okay, you can see him in this moment. And it makes the fact that they are conniving to get a homeless man together with the woman he stalks seems vaguely sweet. It's less terrifying than it would be. <laughs> than it should be. She does not bite at their first attempt. So... Take two. Jack brings his new pal, the homeless cabaret singer, dressed in a blonde wig, complete with tag hanging off of it, flapper dress, and a bunch of yellow balloons to serenade her. You must be she. I had a dream, a dream for guess who, Lydia. It wasn't for her, Lydia. It's only for you, yes, Lydia. Some people can get their kicks watching couple and late night flicks. That's okay for some people who don't own VCRs. But Lydia... You've won the grand prize. Just think of it. All the movies you'll watch for free now. Dramas, westerns, comedies. Wow! Video Spot has the best selection. If you like porno, we're your connection. And everything's coming up videos. Everything's coming up videos. But this time for free. Because what is the song again? It's... It's Everything's Coming Up Roses? Yeah, it's Everything's Coming Up Roses. They want to use it. It's what's in the script. But Sondheim doesn't let anybody touch anything. And it's really funny knowing about laws and hearing this both from from, uh, production and from regular people and from old anecdotes like this. Because I know, in theory, anyone can sing basically anything Mm -hmm. for free at some level. I think you could have claimed that a version of that song with lyrics changed about VCRs and movie rentals, it would have fallen into fair use and parody, right? Sure, or something. But they really wanted Sondheim to give the okay. And so Michael called up Sondheim. (laughs) And he's like, okay, but if someone's going to rewrite this shit, I'm rewriting it. And so... These lyrics are written by Stephen fucking Sondheim. <laughs> and they're really cute. <laughs> yeah, they're like, hey, uh, we're going to change it so it's weird. who don't own VCRs. <laughs> you, Lydia. <laughs> okay, I don't mind signing off on this, but I'm going to get to do the rewrite, right? <laughs> like, sure. Please. Stephen Sondheim. And so, yes, I don't know if it's credited, actually, but I do know that Stephen Sondheim rewrote this song for him. <laughs> Whether it is from mortification or just genuine curiosity in what the video spot has to offer, Lydia decides to take her new membership. 
Next stage of the plan. Dress Perry up like an employee, put a car air freshener around his neck, because he's still clearly a homeless man wearing a, a Video Spot t-shirt, and introduce them. They're destined to fall in love. I miss freestanding video cassettes up on shelves just waiting to be knocked over by klutzy lunatics. It, it's just it's just a bygone thing. Videotapes are just one more physical media that, that's just dead. Yeah. It really is closer to vinyl than something like DVDs are, where they just kind of like wash it away and that's fine. I mean, they're kind of still around, but whatever. But no, the fondness we had, the, the, the videotapes were how we saw movies. It's, it's one of the things I genuinely like about Twitter is every once in a while, somebody will just make a fake VHS, right? They'll just make their own copy and they'll do the artwork for it and it'll, it'll, it'll give me all the, the fun, the fun feelings of yesteryear. I don't know. Yeah, no, no, no. That's it, it, it was part of the iconography. It's like, uh, and we didn't adapt it because it was adapted to nothing. You know, when when CDs replaced vinyl, and it really was CDs that replaced vinyl, tapes with this other thing that was going mm-hmm. on. There's a reason that CDs look like they do. And there's a reason that the liner notes inside look like they do. Someone was like, all right. We have to give someone, at very least, the exact value they got from this other thing. And so a little sleeve of liner notes shoved in there. And we kind of never replaced all the all, all, all the stuffness of the release of a movie. You know, I mean, again, I, I will not shut up about my love of a Kindle. I also am currently reading a book on my Kindle that I have a hardcover copy of right there on my shelf. Why? Because I liked it, so I want it to be there. I want the thing. I want the dusk jacket. I want to I wanna make it clear that this is my book. I'm not going to read it fucking that way, though. That's, <laughs> it's 2022. It's the downside of the Star Trekening of our universe. Yeah, but you know what? The Star Trekening is pretty good, because you know what? Everybody in Star Trek had a couple of books everyone was supposed to care about. Everyone in Star Trek had a couple of, like, totally random objects that you know had nothing to do with it. Because that is the world we're going to. Look, everything you could ever need exists. Also, you might want a couple of real things to sit around to remind you that this is your identity. Also, there are going to be three dudes who live... Like the red letter media guys with their walls covered with all the media. Like they're the only ones who have it. Uh huh. Yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's a weird thing. And when you are a collector, when that has been a big part of who you are, giving that up is very weird and actually more of a decades long process rather than like a sudden thing where you're just like, so the media is now, yeah, it's just out there. Okay. But part of me was having the media, but you have the media. But you don't. It's in the cloud. I, You know, I realized actually just last night as I, you know, put RoboCop, the first RoboCop, in my iTunes that I really have turned Apple movies into the exact same thing that my iTunes was at the turn of the century. Where I'm just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Everything's out and everything's wherever, but like my stuff goes here. Here. <laughs> oh, RoboCop's not in there? Well, there are ways to watch Robo... I am a person with RoboCop in my library. That was only five bucks, but still, that was the logic. How do, how do I not have RoboCop? Well, that's not appropriate at all. Here's five dollars. Now I have RoboCop. Great. We miss video stores. Robin Williams is very nervous about approaching this woman. Lydia is super standoffish and seems to, for the first time be giving us some real clues that she is a 
a genuinely antisocial human being. The lack of Ethel Merman musicals almost ruins the plan for romance, but at the very last moment, Lydia notices Anne's nails. I think my favorite moment about this is, is Amanda Plummer's faces as she tries to decide whether or not to pay 40 bucks to have Mercedes Rule do her nails. It's just like... Yeah, no, it's great. Their relationship is a, is a delight. Mm-hmm. Lydia is a delight. Uh, when she's playing off Van, they're, they're, they, they suddenly turn into little girls for a minute. It's great. This is where we get to see a couple of interactions between some of the characters that we'll never get to see again. And it's so very important that we see it. There is only actually one moment where Perry and Anne interact, and that is while Jeff Bridges is getting Robin Williams ready for his date, doing all the tailoring in the most haphazard way possible. I love the stapler just because I understand this. This is a man who knows that these clothes not fitting would be inappropriate, and he has to fix that. But he has no idea how to do it. He's just like, stapler, that'll that'll work. <laughs> the man has taste, but not uh, any capacity to engineer that taste in the world. At all. At all. It's just been sort of provided for him. He used to have money. Yeah, and that would fix it. Everything he wears, and actually what Rob Williams is wearing here too, is hot couture through mm. the whole movie. It's just he's wearing it like he's abusing it, and he hates that it's there now. <laughs> like... Even everything Jeff Bridges is wearing is just like kind of half falling off of him. And it's all hot couture from a few years ago. It's actually very, it is, there's a lot of attention to detail here. It feels like the clothes Jack brought with him in 88. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's, there's the clothes he moved in with, uh, what he could fit in some stuff. And there weren't good online consignment shops or something. But, but throughout this process, Perry is is just just doing very gentle leering at Anne. And you get it's purely Robin Williams charisma where he doesn't come off as a perv even as he's being pervy. Uh-huh. We know he's damaged. So we're putting our thumb on the scale just a little bit for him. And yeah, the charm is just also working. But also, and this is important. What well, was well, she scared of him because she's still in that there's a homeless man in my home vibe. This is still <laughs> happening. Like, this is a a gentle sexual harassment that is more endearing than it is creepy. Yeah, no, it's just there. No. You, this incredible woman going to waste before my very eyes? No, this is outrageous! I will not hear this. No! No, come on! Jack, come on! I am your man, then. Let's do it right here. Let's go to that place of splendor in the grass. Behold my magic wand and free your golden orbs right now. You know what I'm saying, yes? Holding my penis. What a wonderful way of saying how much you like. Harry, close your pants. Took you long enough, huh? (laughs) What are you, about a uh, 40 in a jacket? Yeah, that's it. I, one of the best scenes is Mercedes Rule and Amanda Plummer bonding while she does her nails. Well, and you get the idea that Lydia, ha- it hasn't even occurred to Lydia that she doesn't really have friends and that that's a problem. I, my argument it would be that it's occurred to her as an antisocial person with, <laughs> with certain amounts of anxiety about, about socializing. Hey, you know my feelings about humanity. <laughs> right. It's not 
that you don't know it's a problem. You know it's a problem. But because it's a clearly insoluble problem. Like COVID. Like climate change. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what, what are we supposed to do about this other than look at other people and go, well, nothing you can do. No way to fix this that I have no friends. And the transition of the two of them both clearly not being into interacting with each other, but then suddenly bonding over things like how terrible dating is and their moms are. It yeah, just trust me, trust me, I've been out there. You haven't missed anything. <laughs> I mean, look at us. We're having a very lovely conversation. I'm paying you. Oh, look, will you stop it? I'm not like that. I don't do people favors. If I talk to you, it's because I want to talk to you. All right, you're not a supermodel. We can't all be Jerry Hall. What a boring world it would be if we were all Jerry Hall. Mm. You do the best you can with what you got. Mm. You're not so invisible. Hey, you want a personality? Try this on for size. You can be a real bitch. Really? Yeah. They just connect so naturally because Mercedes Rule ha- is giving this in-your-face personality and Lydia is just so withdrawn that she needs that in order to draw her out. The the perfect kind of damaged weirdo that Mercedes Rule's character is, is naturally into helping. She likes to nurse wounded birds. Yeah, I mean, we're... <laughs> <laughs> we got Jack. Uh-huh. And when when Jack actually walks in, it's like Jack has walked in on a secret. Uh-huh. It's this he's he's playing it great, they're playing it great, and there's nothing happening. There's uh-huh. nothing, but it but he has invaded what has become She jumps like he caught them kissing or something. Uh-huh. And just yeah. like- <laughs> and why? Well, I was momentarily distracted by the peace of speaking to another human being and enjoying just being people. Uh-huh. Whoops, you did catch me. Perry and Jack arrive, and they find the the women laughing on the floor, and then Jeff Bridges and Mercedes Rule have to corral their two damaged birds and get them to go have Chinese food. This is where you get the the Perry stuff that I, mm-hmm. like. It's it's the walk yeah. where you realize that she is not listening to a word he is saying, and he's reaching. <laughs> well, well, here here's the thing. I I I read it a slightly different way. I okay. I read it. That she's talking and she thinks he's not listening. She thinks that she is boring him and that he's not paying attention because he's doing weird Robin Williams things. Sure, like sure, he, sure. Re- he reaches into the trash to grab a bottle for something, right? Oh, yeah. No, that's a great little scene. Yeah. But actually, yeah. he's super focused on her. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he makes some insightful comments about what her job must be like and, you know, and, and some thoughts just about romance in general. And he hands her... This tiny little chair that he has made out of wire that he grabbed from a wine bottle while he was listening to her. Well, my read is just, and it's and it's informed by later on, where you realize that the only time Lydia's happy in this movie is when is when he's in a coma. Really? It's the only time you really see her smile. It's the only time you really see her confident. It's the only time you really see her relaxed. This is, in some ways, for her, better than a boyfriend is the safety mm. of somebody that seems like they might be a boyfriend, but they don't have to interact with, that she doesn't right. have to deal with, that it aren't, that isn't complicated. 
I, I see that a little. And, and I, I agree in part. There are moments she has, like with Mercedes Rule when they're laughing on the floor, but also with Perry, where she forgets herself. And in that forgetting, she actually gets to be happy. She actually gets to smile for a little bit. She sure. gets to no, I know, see those. Yeah. relax. And the, the thing about having a boyfriend in a coma is that, well, there's no stress there. So, yes, of course, she looks relaxed because the, the, the stressor of an awake human being is gone. I, I wouldn't say that she prefers that. It's just, you know. Oh, see, the first time I realized that, I changed my understanding of the character. Mm. Is, is But I definitely say she has an easier time with it, sure. We get to see them falling in love over Chinese food as uh, he drops dumplings and glasses and belches to make her feel less awkward about doing all those things. We get, we get a lot of side swipe transitions. They they bat broccoli across the table at each other. She's very, very weird. And he very sweetly mirrors her weirdness back at her. And it all ends with him singing. <laughs> oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. She has eyes that men adore so, and a torso even more so. Oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the queen of tattoos. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo. Beside it, the wreck of the Hesperus, too. And proudly above waves of red, white, and blue. You can learn a lot from Lydia. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. As Jeff Bridges and Mercedes Rule walk home after the dinner, there's this weird moment that they have together where Jeff Bridges is getting a little flirty with her, and you can see Mercedes Rule hesitate to kiss him. She, like, holds back, and it's almost like she's nervous by this show of emotion because she wants that so badly, and the fact that he's finally reciprocating in a way that seems human and romantic after all this time, you could tell it makes her unsettled every time she's on screen she's telling a whole story it's and and given how loud the two male leads are that's impressive Mm -hmm. i mean and because both both of them are loud right they are big characters i mean you can even throw amanda Plummer in there too right she's being real big yeah no she is she's at least being real big right here mercedes rules just holding the shit together (laughs) as robin williams and amanda Plummer walk home. Lydia has begun overthinking things. And this scene is so very, very important because we need to 100% believe that this woman is the type of person who would fall in love with a crazy homeless man who has been stalking her. Yes, we do. Do you believe it? Oh, my no. Oh, my no. (laughs) It's a real dangerous balance, I I will admit there. Uh, no, no, again, I, my interpretation of this, I believe is actually just, it's either different, it's different than you, certainly, it might be different than what the filmmakers mm. are trying to do. I do not see this woman falling in love with him. I see this woman taking an easy out and feeling responsible for it. Either way, she starts thinking about how their relationship is inevitably going to break down and, and, and stop functioning after, uh, at best, a week or two. Wait, one minute. Hey, excuse me. Please, wait. Wait. No, listen, I'm not feeling very well. Oh, no wonder. We just met, made love, and broke up, all in the space of 30 seconds. 
And I don't remember having the first kiss, which I think is the best part. It was so very special to meet you. And it was and for I me too. But I think it's time you should shut up now. Would... Shut up. Please. And then he tells her that he loves her and has been watching her and knows things about her. This is their first date. She's also way too fine with this. I understand magical realism, etc., 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 and different times or whatever. And you get a hint of apprehension, but like, again, no, just I need you to acknowledge the insanity of this moment that is happening right now. I need just hang a lantern on it. Just hang a lantern on it, buddy. <laughs> It's all the actors in this scene. It's all Robin Williams being oddly gentle, even though it's insane. And it's all her being damaged enough that you buy it like, oh, okay, this is a thing she desperately wants. Even though there is no rational set of human interactions that would lead to this. It, it just, it's just a thing movies do when they trick you into thinking something could actually happen. Yeah, you just have to go with it. And it's yeah. the only thing in this. My reading, right or wrong, mm -hmm. is because of, not despite, everything you've said. Oh, I, I gotta come up with some reason that any of this shit makes sense. What she thinks she is capable of and allows her to have the things that she wanted or thought she should want without any of the shit that she was just describing as being both difficult and bad. You know, mm -hmm. she is she is interested in him, but she is not interested in the person. She is interested in sort of what he can provide her. <laughs> and he didn't need to be conscious to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, and he didn't need to be conscious to do that, as a matter of fact. But yeah, it's it's trying to solve a problem that may just be bad writing or historical context. I think this is the part of the movie that you really have to stretch for. And again, if if if. Everyone involved weren't so good at what they were doing, including Gilliam. It would be a movie breaker. Yeah, exactly. And here it's not. They're just, they're doing good work. And so they share their first kiss. She returns to her apartment, giggling like a schoolgirl. But as she closes the door, Perry cannot shake the images of the night his wife died. He buckles in pain as the red knight appears in the middle of the road. Please, let me have this, he begs his psyche. Oh my god, this is so heartbreaking, and it's it's Terry Gilliam. It is, it's just Gilliam. Giving us an eye into real grief. Mm. Like, oh yeah, things got a little bit better. Yeah, problem is, that means his brain let up for a minute. And now it has to punish him twice as much. <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah, it's... <laughs> Felt a little good there for a minute. That's going to let his brain do some stuff. You let some you let some love in, and the poison's all back up. All back up. He cannot let himself have this moment of peace. He he runs into the night in his clownishly oversized suit, cross-cut with incredibly graphic images of his wife's murder. And Gilliam is 100% right. This needed to be as graphic as humanly possible. And as human as humanly possible. It had to be savage. We need to see his damage, and we need to see that his damage would throw him into catatonia. Yeah, exactly. And we need to see why. And the fa honestly, I think the shot of the shotgun blast going through her and only oh, being seen on his face. Just spraying into his face. It's yeah, so it's, terrible. It's, yeah, and it's, it's one of the, like, again, I understand why it was... What It was a famous argument shot about this. Also, mm -hmm. Terry Gilliam was right. Also, 
whoever his paymasters were, were 100% right to be like, oh. Right. <laughs> I would have argued not to do it. I would have. I would have gone like, hey, cut this in the penis and we're in, in prime PG-13 territory here. <laughs> and he finds himself back under the bridge where he met Jeff Bridges at the beginning of the movie. And lo and behold, the same two thugs who assaulted Jeff Bridges are back. Without being too super nitpicky, this is the moment for me, where I feel like they're too over the top. And it sort of screws up the first one. Like the first one, I'm going, I'm, I'm like, all right, that's, we want our horror to be serious. I can see that them returning makes it a little cartoonish. I just don't like it. I mean, I really don't like, like, it's one of those things where like the nitpicker in me was aware of it beforehand and watching it. I, I, most things just kind of wash over me as I, and watching it, I was like, nah, it still bugs me. But here's what redeems it for me. There is a moment where Gilliam closes in on, on Robin Williams' face as he realizes these men intend to kill him. And in that moment, what you get is just such gratitude. Yes. He like looks at them and just says, thank you. He thanks them for what they're about to do in the most heartbreaking way. If they start to slash him with switchblades and beat him with a bat, it, it, it kills me, man. <laughs> It's a lot. And, you know, sometimes the lot is, it has a payoff. And here it is both disturbing and it bothers me. It doesn't fit. It's mm. too much. It's too much. See, it works for me. It, it's just because that moment is so, so disconcerting. Yeah, no, it, I get you. And again, we, we don't spend a lot of time there. We move out real quick. Mm -hmm. And that's good. But yeah, it still kind of bumps me now. In a way that it, I guess, didn't when I first saw it. Here, it's just like, mm -hmm. it just feels like, uh, I get that you're trying to frame the things, but... Uh. A worse movie, you would say it had tone issues. That it couldn't decide whether it wanted to be comedic, dramatic, or terrifying. And because it's a Gilliam movie, it can be all three of those things. It's just every once in a while, he pushes one of them a little too far. Yeah. And this is for me, this is just that moment. And again, mm -hmm. I like the visceral and I love to be disturbed in that way. And it just, it clicks over somewhere in the odometer in my head. And I'm just like, nah, nah, I did, I, this is too much. That's fair. This is, mm -hmm. this is too much. Uh, and again, it's just not, he also doesn't look enough like a bum anymore. And yeah. that's a problem too. Because yeah. again, I get the parallel they're trying to draw. Like, I, I, I understand man's inhumanity to man. I do not believe these people would try to kill him and set him on fire for fear of retribution because he does not look homeless enough at this moment. Which also kind of loses a little bit of the, of the metaphor. In the morning, Jack Lucas feels great. He has saved someone's mental well-being by by helping them get a girlfriend. He did the thing. He did the thing. He fixed it. He fixed he did something bad, but then he fixed it. So now he's on the phone with his agent. He's ready to start life back up again. He's a new man. <laughs> uh but and and looks in she's like, "You made coffee?" 
you're going back to work and you make coffee? Uh, she cannot believe that he has done multiple considerate things in the space of 24 hours. <laughs> and he will try to break up with her during this scene, right? I'm just like double checking oh, oh, to make sure. Oh, certainly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, All yes. Right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the second she starts talking about them getting a bigger place together, the sweetness with which he takes her by the shoulders and then looks her in the eye and like, you are an incredible woman. And it just... There's the dawning realization on her face. She can sense what's coming next. She is about to get discarded. As much as I did like Moscow and the Hudson, the breakup was the one part that I just didn't feel made sense. I didn't understand, or or rather, I needed to bring in outside information in order to make it make sense. Uh-huh. But this one here, I understand everything. I understand all the components that both of them are feeling. Yeah, no, this is... And it's brutal because of it. It's brutal because of it. It really is. It's, he thinks he's being nice. Yeah, exactly. It's He thinks he's doing this the right way. <laughs> it's so tricky when you have a character that's bad. But we've all done this. If not in a breakup, in something. In, you know, in, in an interaction and whatever. Right. And both Gilliam... And the actors here are doing just amazing work because Jack does not know he's a piece of shit right now at all. And we all know. <laughs> he knows he's always been better than Anne and the video spot and the life he's been living. And in his mind, the purgatory is over. He, d exactly. he doesn't need her anymore because she's part of the purgatory. She can't come with him to where he's going. She doesn't belong there. No, 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 no. It, what would she do? <laughs> where would the children live? <laughs> I'd have to, I have to, like, love this substandard woman forever? Ugh. What are we even talking about? I'm, I'm going to be a star again. A star, see? <laughs> yeah, then it's on a dime. I feel like a weaker director and actor and writer would have drawn this out or at least given us some time in between yeah even if they weren't interacting but no it's important that it's 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 that quick he's like oh no i'm fixed now and because he's fixed he can't be guilty about it what else could he do he doesn't have any choice exactly he's he's fixed he's this is just now life is happening come on you always kind of knew what the deal was right Right? Yeah, and he he says hey, we both got something out of it. Okay? What did I get? What did I get? What did I get? I couldn't have gotten from anybody with no name any night of the week. Do you think your company is such a treat? Your moods, your pain, your problems. Do you think this has been entertaining for me? And what do you want to stay with me for? Because I love you. And she just refuses to let him comfort her or himself about what he's doing. I don't mind saying this interaction is one of the reasons I am eternally single. And it is, I just, <laughs> I, I don't want to ever be that person to somebody again. Like where you're just like, look, you are a human and I care about you because you are a human. Also, I don't want to be involved in this anymore, but I'm a good guy. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm making my life better. Right. And didn't we want to make my life better? 12 hours ago when we thought that was a group project. <laughs> <laughs> it has a little bit of a, a different tinge when it's a solo act, doesn't it? <laughs> this is what I'm saying. <laughs> but then Jack gets the call. Perry had Jack's wallet 
on him while the thugs accosted him, and he is now in a catatonic state in a local hospital. A very blunt doctor tells Jack and Anne that he's reliving his pain over and over, and it's put him in a waking coma of sorts. But never mind! Jack's back in the prison-like recording studio, ending his radio show the best way you can. So... From one of the botched to all of you bungled cats out there, I love you and right back at you. He's so wise now. This is why the almost prison-like shot that the movie opens with is so brilliant. Uh-huh. Because at the time, it's a little jarring. And you're impressed with it. That's good, because now it's jammed in your fucking brain. And now... And now he's back in prison and he doesn't realize it because he's happy to be back. He's so glad. An hour and 50 minutes into the movie, (laughs) we are right back there. And everybody else's life is significantly worse. All of the other characters that we have met, things are worse for them Mm -hmm. because of Jack. (laughs) He's improved no one. But he feels better. What can he do? No, when when you're talking to cable people about a talk show, you're playing I've Got the Power, what else can you do if you're a newly sane master of the universe? Yeah, no, you gotta go with Niles Crane to hear a TV pitch from Q. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing left to do. As he walks towards the building where John Delancey of, of Star Trek <laughs> fame is going to pitch him a, a show, he is spotted by the homeless cabaret singer. The nameless homeless cabaret singer. And he calls to Jack. It's like, Jack, I'm your friend. We spent all that time together. It's so heartbreaking. Why won't you talk to me? As, As Jack just averts his eyes and lets a cop drag him away. This person is part of an old life. Never meant anything. He just lets it happen. And then he goes upstairs to hear Q toss him a pitch. Okay, first of all, the set design of that guy's office is great because it's exactly the same as all the horrors we saw early on that we were supposed to be getting over. It's just back. And 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 it is just it's the worst pitch. And it's <laughs> important that it's the worst pitch. Now, when you say the worst pitch, you mean the worst pitch morally, right? Like it's a, it's repugnant. Yeah, it's both. It's both. But it's <laughs> okay. definitely the worst pitch. And he's just, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Yeah, okay. It's a weekly comedy about the homeless. But it's not depressing in any way. We want to find a funny, upbeat way of bringing the issue of homelessness to television. So, we've got three wacky homeless characters. But they're wise. They're wacky and they're wise. And the hook is they love being homeless. They love the freedom. They love the adventure. It's, it's all about the joy of living, not the bullshit that we have to deal with, the money, the politics. And the best part is, it's called home free. No, it's so gross. It's gross because it's true. That's exactly the TV show that one would make out of his experience with the homeless if they wanted to. And in this exact moment, it is the first time we see that Jack has to reckon with what the fuck has happened to his life in the last three years it is the first moment in the whole movie where we are not presented with the simple binary of of good and evil jack 
Like, and that, and that's, and that's just fine. It is no, you, you you did all that. You know this is a terrible pitch. You know it's a morally offensive pitch. (laughs) It 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 denies their humanity by taking away their suffering, the suffering you have been just immersed in for three years of your life, and now you're gonna pretend that that never existed for you or for them, and then just the twitches on Jeff Bridges' face as he processes it. Yeah. Oh, no, he's doing great. He's doing crazy good stuff here. And when he hears that the title of this sitcom, this proposed sitcom, is home free, he stands up and wordlessly runs out of the room. It just, no, it's too much. <laughs> You're like, no, no, not that bad. I'm not that bad a person anymore. I, whoops, it looks like... They, I- <laughs> well, but maybe he is. He tears out of the building uh, looking for his friend, the cabaret singer, but he's gone. He's missed his chance. He's never going to find him. He doesn't even know his name. And he realizes in this moment, He hasn't fixed anything about himself. He's not any wiser. He's not any better. He's just the same piece of shit in a nicer suit. Yeah. And then we decide it's time to end the movie. (laughs) He goes to see Perry at a mental institution, bringing Pinocchio with him, of course. There is a really intense shot of Jeff Bridges, like, leaning on another patient's walker while a man sits in the foreground with one side of his head just inexplicably bleeding. Yeah, oh my god. And there's no explanation anywhere in anything. Uh-uh. I went back nope. to, like, I felt like I'd missed something. I was like, oh, shit, no. Just bleeding. No, just just to, to clarify that Perry is in hell. You know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, also, there is an extra there planted exclusively because he looks like Baron Munchausen, and it is, <laughs> it is Terry Gilliam's idea that that extra is in fact Munchausen and then it's all connected is there a thing that Terry Gilliam fears more than insanity Mm -mm. but frankly I read flowers for Algernon once when I was too young and now I basically operate with the understanding that whatever loose collection of ideas and senses make you up is tenuous at best and anyone can take it away for any reason usually money uh, so, <laughs> so I'm with you, Gilliam. Frankly, it's the only thing that actually scares me. I think I wept openly at Still Alice. <laughs> Lydia is there. He hides from her a little bit, but he sees that she's brought Perry sheets. I'm also going to assume that she's responsible for his watermelon PJs. The whole thing. This is, to me, this is Lydia. And and it's interesting because this, for me, is, Lydia is most present in these areas where she is not. Uh, that it's it's sort of where I get my whole read on her. My only argument is I don't think it negates the possibility of having had romance. It's just that this is far easier for her to do. Well, she's far more comfortable with it. Uh-huh. She's far more comfortable with it. This is, again, to her mind, I believe, better than if he was not in a catatonic state. And I feel I feel difficult saying the word better, but I see where you're coming from with it. Jack waits for her to leave, and then moves to Perry's bedside. And he delivers a tremendous monologue in this moment. It just starts off with the idea that it's not his responsibility, it's not his fault, he's got a great life, he's not guilty about that life. And and by the end, you take that journey with him to understanding that he has got to do something for Perry. Everything's been going great. Great. I'm going to have my own cable talk show. Mm -hmm. 
with an incredible equity, I might add. Got an incredible, incredibly fucking gorgeous girlfriend. I'm living an incredible fucking life. So don't lay there in your comfortable little coma and think, I'm going to risk all that because I feel responsible for you. I'm not responsible! And I don't feel guilty. You've got it easy. I'm out there every day, every fucking day, trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing. Why, no matter what I have, it feels like I have nothing. So I don't feel sorry for you. It's easy being nuts. Try being me. He's still stuck in that self-absorbed uh -huh. zone. But he walks himself out of it during the course of the monologue. There's a weird moment here, too, which is that uh, Jeff Bridges has a special liquid that he uses to cry, and he won't mm. tell anyone what's in it. <laughs> but when he puts it in his eye, he says, you have 15 seconds. And so you have to shoot around it. Cause like, okay, 15 seconds. All right, and go. And you do some stuff up. Oh, and in 15 seconds, I'm going to tear up. One tear is going to come down my eye. Crazy. <laughs> okay. All right. For sake of argument, let's say I do do this. Okay. If I do this, I want you to know it wouldn't be because I felt I had to, or because I felt cursed or guilty or responsible or anything. If I do this, It's because I want to do this for you. That's all. He gets himself to this place where he says, like, I can do a thing that's not about me. I can do a thing just for you because I care about you and want your life to be better. He's determined to do something selfless for a friend. So it's time for a heist. Jeff Bridges approaches the castle in the middle of New York with a grappling hook made out of an anchor and a rope thrown over crenellations. Okay, this is something I never noticed before watching this whole thing. It all works. I, I, I can't explain it, but like, no, this is all stuff you could do. It's it. Yeah. And no, it's actually a solid plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I think because of the magical realism, I've never been wrapped up in that part before by this period in the film. But there, I was just like, huh. Yeah, that is not a bad break-in. No, he, like, slingshots an arrow over a fish gargoyle, and then he, like, swings around and climbs up, saying, thank God nobody looks up in this town. <laughs> yeah! 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 From the roof, he heads through some conveniently unlocked door downstairs. He has visions of Edwin the psychopath who shot up the restaurant. The only time we get, like, Jeff Bridges hallucinating anything, he's... He heads down the hall into the library where he sees the grail. He has it in his hands and it's just an old award, you know, shaped like a cup. But sitting in a chair behind him is the architect who owns this house. He seems to be having some kind of medical issue. Later, we find that he's involved in a suicide attempt. He's tried to like overdose on pills. So, hey, New York's tough on the rich too, Borsier. 
I know. I understand. <laughs> again, hey, again. Not, hey, not just the not homeless, few, all right? I, there are not a lot of things I truly know about, about New York, specifically Manhattan. But I do understand that it is a living entity and it wants us all to die. It would like to kill us all. And it doesn't care if you're a Coke brother or an aspiring actor living on the Lower East Side. It hates you and would like you to die. It's just the Coke brothers are a little better at keeping it at bay. (laughs) Well, one Coke brother. (laughs) Seeing the passed out body of the man overdosing on pills, Jack does the only thing he can do to help. Instead of leaving the way he came, he goes out the front door, activating a laser alarm that calls the cops and saves this man's life. I don't know why Terry Gilliam added this element. I think I do, but it's stupid. And it's that old Jack, even though he was doing this for his friend, just fled. Because... So concerned with not being caught. Exactly. And post this movie, Jack is like, yeah, no, that guy shouldn't die. I should probably... (laughs) Should probably fix yeah. something. <laughs> it's just weird to say this, but doing something that I think any human being would do oh, no. for it. Uh, I say like well, it, it took him no effort to open that door. There was no extra effort. <laughs> Overwhelmingly, most people, when presented with someone dying, even though it might cause them minor complications with the police or the judiciary, will let that person die and know for every single second of the rest of their days that they did the right thing and it had nothing to do with them. Again, I have to watch this movie through a very different lens than I did, say, 15 years ago. <laughs> that's, that's super dark. Let's move on. <laughs> it's the next morning. He's returned to Perry. He put the grail on his sleeping chest, wrapping his hands around it. Jack, sleeping by the side of the bed. This institution has very lax visiting hours, by the way. Extremely lax. Extremely lax. Also, apparently, although Perry is completely catatonic, his hands are magic. Mm, (laughs) No, his fingers start to move. He can feel the grail. He wakes up. I had this dream, Jack. I was married. I was married to this beautiful woman. And you were there, too. I really miss her, Jack. Is that okay? Can I miss her now? Thank you. It's so vulnerable. Oh, God, it kills you. It kills you. It kills you. It's that thing that Rob Williams just did so wonderfully. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he could touch a pathos inside you. He understood that that was necessary, even though it was manipulative. In a way hmm. that I think only as a filmmaker Spielberg does. Where he's just like, nah, that's going to make you feel a thing. Right, this is how it happens. Yeah, but isn't that manipulative? Don't care. <laughs> it, it's like, I am one of the few people on this earth who knows how to make people feel things. I gotta do it. It's the it's the job. It, <laughs> We've all been twenty one and seen Jurassic Park again and gone. Oh, this music is so manipulative. We've also all been thirty and gone. This music is so manipulative. <laughs> Lydia walks into the hospital the next morning. 
Harry's bed is empty except for a wooden Pinocchio. And suddenly in the next hall, I like New York in June. How about you? This is the point at which the line that he's strafing gets the closest to being crossed over. Where he's got these singers. And they all seem to be fairly individually designed. Mm -hmm. And it gets a little close to... And these are wacky characters! Right. It's on the border. (laughs) But, you know... It's one of those things that I I think we accept because it's time to be happy in the movie. Sure, yeah. And so, because this is a movie and it's time to be happy in the movie, we can accept all the mental patients singing uh, as as Lydia and Perry kiss and and Jack conducts them as best he is able. Like, all right, fine. As the strains of the song continue in the background, Jack heads back to Anne's video store. As much as I didn't buy. Robin Williams and Maria Conchita Alonso reconciling, I do buy it here. 100%. 100%. And that's the beauty of it. It's, it's, it's the slap. It's everything uh-huh. about it. How he mumbles that he loves her. Yeah. Yeah. It's everything about it. It's, 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 it's not, we are not being presented with a character who we are supposed to judge for not being able to say, I love you for the rest of the fucking movie. We are presented with a character who we are supposed to be like, oh no, it was that hard for him to do that shit. I <laughs> Is it stupid that it was that hard? Yes. Was it that hard? Also yes. Also yes. <laughs> Is it stupid for her to let this this egomaniac back in her life? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but is she the type of person who definitely would do it and definitely cares about him? Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. She is also the kind of person, and I say this with only promise, who will take him to the cleaners when they divorce in 1996. Uh, yeah, that's sad. Let's not think about the the sequel to this film. Yeah, but she is going to she is going to rake him over the coals, but it's okay. He's still going to keep his place on the upper east side. And so we end our film with some more cloud busting. Robert Williams and Jeff Bridges lie naked in the park with Pinocchio between them. Finally, they've both become real boys, I guess. I have never wanted so badly to be involved in something that was so clearly not a part of life or real or anything like that. I just want to lie naked in Central Park and watch clouds with someone. I, it turns out. I, I, <laughs> that's, that's not an aspiration I thought I had, but look at that. <laughs> it's not going to be me. I'm sorry to tell you. I, I know. I know. I know. Okay. I know. <laughs> Maybe for your birthday. <laughs> no. The camera rises from the two nude weirdos over a skyline of New York that fills with color and fireworks because happiness can be found in this place, at least in this one instance. The end. The color and fireworks are one of those rare, the movie was completely in the can and Gilliam just went back and was just like, needs a little something. I, I need a button. I need a button. Gotta gotta and, put some pepper on the gumbo. Just mwah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, like after after a full cut, after people are seeing it, after it is done, he's just like, yeah, no, I need color. I look, I've been restraining. Look, do you have any idea how many tiny babies that I wanted to insert? Uh, flying around, flying around. <laughs> I, look, give me this. Give me this. <laughs> One was going to be John Cleese. It was going to be weird and awkward. We were going to all feel weird about it. (laughs) It's all going to look like the new season of What We Do in the Shadows. I love this movie. I love it. It hits all my emotional spots. 
and everyone is so great in it, and Terry Gilliam doesn't go overboard while still going overboard the way he naturally does. This was a movie that was tough for me to watch as an adult, but it's wonderful. I still love it. I still love it, love it. And it pairs very well with Moscow and the Hudson. I think it's doing something very mm-hmm. similar, just in very different ways. This is a hard movie for an adult who's made mistakes to watch. Yeah. And I assume that is all adults. But yeah. like, the last time I saw this movie, I was probably like 25 and hadn't fucked anything up royally yet. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I didn't know what it was like to just be like, oh, oh, so everything's ruined. <laughs> what what am I supposed to do then? I just start something from scratch? I mean, okay, but so everything, it, it's just, it's a different fucking movie, man. It's a different fucking movie for, for, for people who fuck things up themselves and for people who life is just fucked. Like, he's got all the quadrants here where you're just like, oh, this is all the sadness, all the sadness that can be. Well done. Very good. <laughs> it's very real, and it hurts. And what's the answer? I don't know. Stop. I don't know. Th- uh, th- stop. Be nice to some people. Oh, so you should be nice to everybody? Oh, absolutely No, not. no, no, no. <laughs> Most people are terrible and will try to destroy you and set you on fire. Honest to God, I think, I think this may be one of, in the same way that Moscow and the Hudson is. Certainly about New York. Less about New York here. Uh, I think this movie might have been one of my early mission statements about humans. Because it's with the Kool-Aid at the end going down, <laughs> I just never realized how dark the tone was. Also, yeah. I wasn't a grown-up. This is the only Gilliam film in that zone, in, the, in that 20-year zone of perfection, where he tries a happy ending on for size. Just to see how it works. And you know what? Honestly. And I'm so glad he did. It would ruin yeah. this movie if, if he was if he ended it cynical and empty. As much as I enjoy the film Requiem for a Dream, I would not have minded if Requiem for a Dream gave me a reprieve from the two hours of torture with a note. Not everything doesn't have to be better. <laughs> but if you're gonna if you're gonna torture somebody for hours. Give me an out. If not, maybe back up on the torture a little bit. Yeah, and here's uh, where it's really important that Terry Gilliam didn't write this movie. Because yes, if Terry yes. Gilliam writes this movie, it cannot have this ending. No, Terry Gilliam writes this movie, and at the very end, Jack is doing essentially his show, but it's more expensive. It's mm-hmm. shinier. He's in a bigger booth. No, here's where it is. It ends with the pitch. It ends with Q giving his pitch. He runs outside, can't find the guy, but it's too late. That's the end of the movie. That's, yeah, that's, that's life. That's how it happens. You had a moment to help that man who you know. You had a moment to help your friend, but you didn't want to. So now he's dead in a dish somewhere. The end. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful (laughs) film. It's a wonderful film. And, you know, again, my love of Terry Gilliam is one of the first things that made me love cinema. I mean, really, in a primal way. Like early He's a formative filmmaker for me, too. Yeah. And I think I probably liked The Fisher King more than I was supposed to when I was a kid. But that left me with the ability to watch it now in a totally different way. And again, I love I love it now. Yeah, no, I still love it. It's just I love. So and that's, you know, I always I always when I talk about this, even with books, refer to The Graduate as The Graduate is the movie that I have to revisit the most frequently intentionally because I never want to see it 
but every five years, it's a different fucking movie. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just a different movie because of who I am and, and the world I'm bringing to it. And it's really rare that it's a purely lateral move. And in this case, it's a purely lateral move. I love this movie just as much as I did before I knew better. Just for a whole different series of reasons. Just, it's, it's a different motion picture. You in particular live, you know, a, a New York life that would be like, oh, okay. All right. Now, now I understand pieces of this in ways that I, 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 I imagine you as a kid from Minnesota having thoughts about New York understood things about New York that this kid from Minnesota making a movie told you. Yeah, exactly. And now I'm here and some of it's true and some of it is not. Some of it is not. <laughs> so, Borsier, we talked for three hours about a movie, which I'm going to have to cut down to half length, I guess. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Um, 90 minutes is still an episode. Three hours. <sighs> Uh, unless we are blank check with Griffin and David is inappropriate, and we cannot ask that of people. <laughs> so, from two of the bungled to all our botched friends out there, we love you. But, but like in a real way, not in a pretend way, where if you were all in comas, we'd be cool with it because it made us feel special. We'd get, we'd get grails for you. We would for get grails you. for you. We would get grails for all of you. <laughs> all right. So, everybody, this is the last episode of Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure, and I wanted to say a couple things before signed off. First, I guess, just a little bit about where all this came from. It was more than a decade ago. Borsier's life had just collapsed and he had moved into my apartment in Philadelphia living in a loft that was the, the, the apartment itself was too large for one person but was somehow too small for two people but while he was there was the first time we ever started kicking around the idea of actually recording the stupid conversations that we'd have about movies. Now, in his perfect world, it was always going to be a Star Trek podcast because, you know, that's where his heart lies. I never wanted to do a fully Star Trek podcast. I was always adamant, like, no, no, you're gonna have to at least add one bit to this that is about things I like. You, we got to find a way. And from that, this idea of different themes back and forth that he shared something with me and I shared something with him started to develop. And the more I thought about it, the more I liked it, just because he and I have always had very, very similar thoughts about so many different ideas about so many different pieces of media things where just mentioning the name of of different movies different books is just a shorthand for entire conversations that we 100% agree on and that's boring i i you know that's that's something that makes up a friendship but it's nothing that i would ever want to listen to people talk about just revisiting stuff that they 100% agree on. 
But every once in a while, and Star Trek was definitely part of this, you hit an idea where you just don't understand why someone you're close to loves a thing that they love. What's the thing inside you or inside this piece of media that you see that sparks something in you? And I know that I had a bunch of those things that he didn't connect with and that he had these things that I didn't connect with. And the idea that we could share those and discuss them. I don't know. I always liked that idea. I like the idea of it being contentious yet positive. Confusion about what the other person was thinking, but not aggressively trying to destroy the other person's wrong opinion about something that was dumb. And so the idea and the name Hyperstrong Miracle Treasure got floated out a decade plus ago and then just, just sat there because making a podcast is one of those things that you don't really do unless you've got a ton of time on your hands. So flash forward to 2019 and <laughs> the entire world stops. We all go a little insane. And it's one of the things that I realized for myself, at least, I don't know if I can speak for anybody else. The things that you didn't create during lockdown, the book you didn't write, the thing you didn't do, that's probably the thing I'll never do. <laughs> that's, I don't think I'm ever going to write the great American novel. Why? Because I had that period of time where absolutely nothing was happening and I was completely isolated by myself and I didn't do it. <laughs> and so you, you learn a little bit about yourself and about what you're willing to create and put effort into. But somehow the podcast just kind of fell into place. We had all the microphones and materials to make it happen. Again, from a decade ago, all we had to do was have the time and the wherewithal. And the time we had plenty of and the wherewithal going slowly insane provided. <laughs> so why are we stopping? Bunch of different reasons, but one of the primary reasons is that we are not in lockdown anymore. I work a full-time job. And <laughs> the various features of making a podcast, the watching a movie, the talking about, that's, that's fine. That's stuff that I'll always do and don't mind recording myself doing. But the extra bits, the editing and the, ugh, the on, online promoting. Oh, oh, dude. If there's one thing I wish is that we had enough listeners to justify paying someone to do all the online work, tweeting and, and posting Instagram pictures and communicating with strangers, which I did, but I hate. <laughs> so it's just one of those things that is, it's exhilarating to put something out into the world, but I can say that I have absolutely no problem with the fact that we never got enough listeners to start getting truly negative feedback. <laughs> there's, there's a threshold when you put something out into the internet that people that you, 
that don't like you and don't like what you're doing will start talking to you. And we never hit that threshold. And I don't think I would have had emotional problems with reaching it. It's just one stress that we avoided. So, I don't know. For every hour that we record, it takes about an hour and a half to edit it appropriately so that we sound vaguely like we know what we're talking about, even recording this now. I have many habits, long pauses, ums, likes, things that I never understood about my my filler speech that I use without even realizing it. And it has to go because when you're recording a podcast, that just sounds terrible. And that time and energy, I was always very pleased by what we came up with. But at some point, it stops being worth it for entertaining a relatively small number of people. That being said, that relatively small number of people who listen to it, um, I can't thank you enough. I would like to thank my sister, who we don't talk a ton. We're not a very big phone family, but she'd take time out of her day to download the podcast and listen to it and text me about it. I always appreciated that. I'd like to thank Beth Freeman, our one and only real Twitter fan, when <laughs> a person you've never met before is uh, promoting a thing you've created to strangers that you've also never met before. It reminds you that the future exists and that you live there. And it was the the least negative interaction a person could have on Twitter, I think. I'd like to thank Kylie Oram, special guest Kylie Oram, for filling in on days when Borsier was too busy, always added a different perspective. And I really like those episodes we created. I'd also like to thank my friend Jake Joseph, who downloads religiously, listens sporadically, so he might find out about this thank you in a couple years. And Dave Neville, who always loves hearing his name mentioned. So, rather than end with the traditional sign-off in a quote, I'm going to do something that might take a little bit of explaining. You see, every episode, I recite the opening. It, it's not a single recording. I redo it every single time. And every time it comes to the moment where the theme says the title, Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure, instead of pausing to make some space, I sing a little song. I say Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure in a, in a sing-song kind of manner. So to say goodbye and to say Merry Christmas to you all and a Happy New Year, 2023, I have decided to make a supercut of myself singing Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure. Listen to it as long as you can stand to, which really is the philosophy I hope everyone has had for the entire podcast. Bye. Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure It's good treasure for you. Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure Hyperstrong Miracle Treasure, your best friend. Hyperstrong Miracle Treasure for me and you.
hyper strong miracle treasure hyper strong miracle treasure hyper strong hyper strong miracle treasure hyper strong miracle treasure hyper strong miracle treasure Podcasting fun for your friends. I'm a strong miracle treasure. I'm a strong miracle treasure. Do it for the children. I'm a strong miracle treasure. I'm a strong miracle treasure. Da 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 da. Dinner 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 strong miracle treasure. I'm a strong. Miracle treasure I'm a strong 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 Miracle treasure, I love you best of all. I'm a strong miracle treasure. Hyper strong miracle treasure! Exclamation point. I'm a strong miracle treasure. Entertainment for you and me. I'm gonna need a super cut of all the times you did that. <laughs> no, I delete also, them all. Also, we should. We should. We should. We should well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs>